This is a Federal News Network podcast. Two new cybersecurity courses developed by the Air Force are available to anyone in the Defense Department. We get the details from the director of the DC-3 Cyber Training Academy, Casey Zyper. Mr. Zyper, good to have you on. Nice to be here. And you have two new courses available, and these are developed in the DC-3, correct? But they're available across the Defense Department? Correct. Anybody with a uh, CAC card essentially is eligible to uh, sign up for an account at our uh, website and deceda.edu. And from there, they can sign up for those classes, take online training. There's all kinds of video content up there as well. All right. And let's start with the shorter that seems like the more basic class that anyone concerned with cybersecurity might want to begin with. Tell us about that one. There's about 28 courses in the inventory. There's the most recent one was for the Department of Defense CIO's office, that's Cyber Fundamentals 101. And it's essentially for all of the work roles in the Department of Defense that are what we call cyber enabling work roles, where you're working in a cyber shop that's maybe conducting cyber operations, doing network defense, maybe even doing network offensive operations, but you're not really a cyber person, but it would it enhance your ability to do your job and support your elements if you knew more about cyber. So that course is part of 8140. It's written into it as a mandatory element for those people in those cyber enabler work roles. For other people too, it's just a good foundational course to kind of as a familiarization of cyber, understanding what the people left and right of you are doing and helping you be better at your job, understanding what their dependencies are and maybe how you can uh, better support them. And this course you can take kind of at your own pace because it's an online deal? Correct. Right. So if you go to the online environment, the deceited.edu, which I'm sure you'll have a link for, is in that environment, there's that course, there's many, many other ones. And it's that course is self-paced but there's, it's time limited. It's not open forever, but it's self-paced in a way that uh, I think that's, that's open for two weeks, that, that one, but it would not take somebody for two weeks to get through the, all of the content on there, but it enables people after hours or during workday that small pieces and chunks to take the course and move through it that way. And the longer course is in person. Right. We have, in terms of the fundamentals course, we have the introduction to networks, computers, and hardware, uh, We the acronym INCH, in that course, students learn. It's essentially geared towards if, if you didn't know anything about cyber, you're coming in as a strong foundational course that walks you through hardware elements, basic networking, network configurations. And the capstone of that course is disassembly, reassembly of a computer, understanding how to put that together, basic operations, operating system functions, and things like that. So out of that course, the idea is that course is building a strong enough foundation that you can then move into other courses like incident response, forensic courses, et cetera, from there. But at least baseline the uh, student population to a certain level of health. And I'm curious about that idea of taking apart a computer because how does that help you with cybersecurity since they're all just – it sounds yeah, like sort of a 90s a little, uh, type of uh, activity. Especially today when you're running into a lot of different types. I mean, a lot of the things that people, even in the law, particularly in the law enforcement field, but otherwise are going to run into are mobile devices, et cetera, things like that. More of the idea of that is in a forensic person, these courses were originally built for a person who'd be doing computer forensics. And in that computer forensic shop, so like I'm, I'm a retired police officer, I did computer forensics for a living in California for many years. You're going to build your own machine. It's part of that that foundational knowledge of understanding how the box works. It's kind of like learning how to change the tires on a car when you're going to go learn to, to drive. You may probably never do it. You have AAA, somebody else come out and do that for you, but it's good to know. 
And it also helps understand how the pieces, parts come together and, and work together well. Uh, will people do that as a practicality in most of the times in their job, particularly in cybersecurity? Probably not. But at the same time, if they're doing an incident response and the idea is they have to collect evidence or they have to collect items in there where they want to see how a person maybe been been building a system up or utilizing that system, you understand how those parts Maybe they're extraneous. They're just laying around at the scene. You could pick them up and use them. We are speaking with Casey Zyper, the DC3 Cyber Training Academy Director. And in developing course and maintaining this catalog of courses that you mentioned, how do you make sure that they are up to date with respect to the threat environments and with respect to the different certification bodies that I imagine you want takers of the courses to be to be involved with also? Correct. So we have strong partnerships, for example, with CompTIA. We deliver CompTIA courses, A+, Net+, Security+, Plus in residence there. All of our cybercasts, which are, again, available essentially at no cost to any of the DoD members with CAC cards, those all confer continuing education units to people with the CompTIA certifications. They've been vetted by CompTIA looked at for the, is the content relevant, is the support a certification that the CompTIA has. And then one of the other, there's many different methods by which we keep the contents up to date and relevant and mission enabled. There's alignment to the work roles, working with the different stakeholders that have, own those work roles in big buckets. We work very closely with the Defense Criminal Investigative Organizations at a, a training subpanel they have. And they're the ones actually going out doing a lot of, particularly in the computer forensics realm, those the work involved from all the way from incident response to the actual doing the forensic reporting on that. So we're looking at courses and we meet with them monthly and conduct those kinds of pulse checks on that. We also do student surveys, obviously, in every course and talking through there and doing that. And then one of the advantages the academy has is the majority of the people that are doing the work are contractors. So it enables us to have people that are actually really practitioners in the field coming out, coming in. They understand what's really the real that there's a, there's theory and then there's actually applica application. So there's the people that are doing it and come back in and help inform that curriculum development. And of course, then working with some of the other major stakeholders and partners, and they have their own requirements, and we work through that with them and build the courses from there. And how many people come through the whole catalog in a given year, and is it a balance of uniforms and civilian employees? If you were terms, in terms of numbers, we're well over hours trained. We're over three, 400,000 hours in a year. I'd have to 5,600 or, or more people. There's a it's, it's a tremendous number of people that come through there. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it depends on the different types of pathways you're looking at. If we're looking at like network uh, defense type of work roles, that's generally all uh, uniformed personnel. If we're looking at cyber forensics, that could be anybody. I could be DOD civilians. Again, a lot of the cyber protection team personnel want and need familiarization with cyber forensics, so they're taking those courses. So it's kind of a, a pretty broad spectrum across the DOD of personnel that are attending the courses and, and taking advantage of that training. And for those people that choose to attend the in-person courses, where do they have to go? So we're uh, located in Hanover, Maryland. We're uh, basically right off of 295, very close to Fort Meade. Three exits up the road, in fact, from Fort Meade. It's right around the corner. We have a brand new training facility, 10 classrooms, and a security operations center at Mothlin where we could do red team, blue team type of activities if we wanted to. That's all been limited, of course, during the COVID pandemic. But as we work our way out of that, we've been expanding more and more in-residence courses and and getting a lot more people back in the building. So I'm excited about that. Casey Zyper is director of the DC3 Cyber Training Academy. Thanks so much for joining me. 
Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. We'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. And today I'm thrilled to be joined by Melissa Bradley, the founder and managing partner at 1863 Ventures, an investment company focused on bridging entrepreneurship and racial equity, and accelerating new majority entrepreneurs from high potential to high growth. Additionally, Melissa is co-founder of Venture Back Eureka, a community where small businesses gain unprecedented access to the expertise needed to grow their businesses and has more than 20 years of entrepreneurship, investment, and leadership experience. Melissa, welcome and thank you for being here. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Who is the first person that you remember looking up to as a leader? And what was it about them that inspired you? So there are actually two people. Um, the first person personally was my mom. Uh, she was a single parent. And what I realized is that she was the leader of our household, but she was also the leader of our community. Um, she was a staunch advocate for children's rights in public schools, making sure that we got a quality education She was a staunch advocate around rights for renters. Um, We were not in a financial position that we actually ever owned a home, uh, but she made sure that people who lived in various types of housing, we were in regular housing, the people who were in regular housing, public housing, she made sure that their rights were advocated for um, and really just always kind of looked out for, I'll, I'll use air quotes, the little guy, while although we were the little guy. Uh, and then I would say she was a huge advocate of older folks. Um, as part of her job, she worked during the week uh, in a full-time job and then cleaned houses on the weekend, but also took care of elderly folks and a staunch advocate for elderly rights. Um, so that was probably the, the first leader. And then I would say the second leader that really came about professionally was a woman named Crystal, Crystal Gaskins, uh, who actually ran a headhunting temporary firm that I ended up spending about a year at, but quickly realized that was not my calling. But in a world where you are constantly managing the powers that be that want to hire all these people and move people around and the folks who are sometimes in vulnerable positions and obviously seeking a job, she always managed to treat everyone with the, with the ultimate respect. And part of the business was actually um, managing hotels and getting service workers to show up. And that's a tough job, right, to try to motivate people who barely are getting paid enough under not great conditions. Um, and so she taught me three things. She taught me how to be a motivator and that recognizing leadership is not mandating, but motivating. She taught me that leadership is not just reporting up, but also reflecting and supporting those who may be underneath you from a hierarchical structure. And she also taught me that leadership was not about money, uh, but it was about producing positive outcomes for whoever your customers were. And if you did that, then obviously the money would come. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over the years? Hmm. I would describe it hashtag work in progress. Um, it, it has evolved over the years, I think, two ways. One, the more people I've been exposed to in leadership positions have certainly helped me pivot and make adjustments. And then certainly as my 
leadership roles have elevated and probably as the more people I've been responsible for has elevated. Uh, you know, certainly being managing partner and founder of 1863 Ventures, we manage a lot of people. We have actually tripled our staff this year. And so we went from three people to oh, actually 12 people plus and growing. Uh, and we went from a couple hundred members to almost 10,000 members. And that's a big deal. Um, I, so my leadership style has evolved in terms of more people that I have reporting to me. I think it's, I, I focus on autonomy. I focus, I'm, I'm very clear that my role is to help other people be successful. Uh, I do set very clear deadlines. I am try to do a good job of kind of projecting what is the overall mission and vision, what are the KPIs and OKRs that we need to hit. And then I feel like I need to get out the way. I need not be a micromanager. I need to recognize, particularly since COVID, that people have kids, they have lives, they have ways that they know how they perform best. And so we now have people who work for me all over the world. And as long as we made our deliverables, I don't need to know that you're sitting in a cubicle or sitting at your computer from nine to five. Um, and that's because I've been at those nine to five jobs where I literally had nothing to do, but I knew I was told I had to be in the office. Uh, and it just seemed like a complete waste of time. And so I'm really laser focused on outcomes and productivity and advancing the vision and mission and not on what does it look like? Because I think a successful work looks different for everyone. And then I would say more externally, as we now have grown to lots of members and we have a social media presence and I talk to people, I'm mindful that the, the probably the most important from an external uh, perspective on my leadership is that I am mindful that I am modeling not just for myself, but particularly for other leaders and particularly Black women and certainly gay Black women, uh, you know, there are not a lot of us. Um, you know, you mentioned that I'm a co-founder of Eureka, so I'm fortunate enough to be in the first 30 or so Black women that have been supported through venture capital, which is a sad statistic, but for a different topic. And so I'm mindful that people are always watching me. And I would say that certainly as a Black woman, people are always watching you, not always for the better and cheering you on, but waiting for you to make a mistake and slip up. And so I'm mindful that when I step into a room or I show up somewhere, I'm not just representing Melissa Bradley and my immediate family. I'm representing all of my members and potentially sending a single effect of what other people are going to expect as Black women. And the final thing I would say that definitely has evolved since now that I'm over 50 uh, is that I feel a much greater freedom to say what's on my mind um, than I did before. And I, and I do that. I probably said what was on my mind before, but in a way that was reflective of my frustration and anger with the system. And now I say it with the, expect, with the level of calmness and the expectation that it's important that we are honest around what do Black communities experience? And to phrase it in a way not based on anger, but really using data. And so I would say I've consistently been a staunch advocate for Black and Brown communities, but has evolved from being very reactive and saying, well, don't do this and don't do that, to saying, let me explain to you why I think it's important that we take this up and really letting the facts drive the discussion. Some of that probably comes from the fact that I've worked in two presidential administrations, and we all know that that just goes back and forth and oftentimes based on rhetoric and not fact. And having six kids in a world of social media, I think there's something, the, the art of, of conversation based on facts and data has devolved to uh, opinions and pundits. And, and I think that's a challenge around leadership because your job is not, in my mind to convince people but to inform people and allow them to make decisions for themselves i i saw you on a post uh, with a washington post um uh interview and it 
you were amazing. And it's interesting to listen to you describe what you just said, because I could see all of that reflected in how you responded there. And um, make one other quick uh, comment about as a company grows, WEPA is growing as well. And you are so spot on. We have, as, as leaders, we have to let go and trust those people that work for us and empower them to do their job and then let them roll. And that's not always easy. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you're sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.